Section 32 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording was in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 60, The Black Sea Clause, The Alabama Arbitration, Part 2. Lord Granville, however, continued to remonstrate. It was necessary to find some way of getting the European powers decently out of the difficulty in which they were placed. To enforce the treaty was out of the question, but on the other hand, it did not look seemly that they should put up quite tamely with the dictatorial resolve of Russia. The ingenious mind of Count Bismarck found a way of putting a fair show on the action of Europe. He suggested that a conference should be held in London to talk the whole matter over. On November 26, 1870, he addressed a circular to Austria, Turkey, Italy, and Russia, requesting them to authorize their representatives to assemble in London at a conference of the powers which had signed the treaty of March 30, 1856, in order to discuss the questions which are raised in connection with the communications in the circular of the Imperial Russian Cabinet. This invitation was stated to have been issued after the English cabinet had assured Count Bismarck of its assent. Lord Granville politely assumed that the Russian government had merely announced its wish to have the clause in the treaty abrogated as a matter for the consideration of the European powers, and that the conference was to be assembled without any foregone conclusion as to its results. This graceful little fiction was welcomed by all diplomatists, the conference met with every becoming appearance of a full belief in the minds of all its members that they were about to consider a proposal which they might either accept or reject as their free judgment should determine. The conference assembled on January 17, 1871, and began its labors by an abstract declaration of principle. A special protocol was signed affirming it to be an essential principle of the law of nations that no state should release itself from the engagements of a treaty unless with the consent of the other contracting powers this important declaration which amounted exactly to the announcement of the fact that there must be at least two parties to a bargain was solemnly agreed upon and then the conference felt itself quite free to finish its work on march thirteenth eighteen seventy one by agreeing to a treaty abrogating the clause for the neutralization of the Black Sea. There was something a little farcical about the whole transaction. We learn from Madame de Remusat that when the great Napoleon played chess, he liked to move the pieces occasionally in any way that suited his plans, and without any particular regard to the established rules of the game if it seemed advantageous to him at some particular movement to give to his king the unlimited movement of the queen, he was in the habit of composedly adopting this new principle. Now we can perhaps imagine a few old-fashioned courtiers being a little offended at this arbitrary and one-sided plan of action, and conscious at the same time of their own inability to overrule the will of the great conqueror, what could be a more honourable and prudent way of reconciling principle and interest than to hold a chess conference, pass a resolution that it is one of the essential principles of the game that no player can alter its laws merely to please himself, and then, after this saving protest, 
proceed to authorize the emperor napoleon to make the particular moves that he happened just then to desire something like this was the policy pursued by the conference held in london it did not tend to raise the credit or add to the popularity of the english government we do not know that there was anything better to do we can only say that the government deserves commiseration which at an important european crisis can do nothing better other troubles began to press upon mr gladstone's government a few weeks after the reissue of the russian circular repudiating the neutralization clause in the treaty of paris general grant in opening the congress of the united states announced that the time had come when the american government must take some decided steps for the settlement of the alabama claims this dispute had reached what we may call its second stage the first was when the english government declined to admit any responsibility for the losses inflicted on american commerce the second was arrived at when the more sober judgment of lord stanley acknowledged a willingness to submit the question to some manner of arbitrament when the matters had gone so far it was natural that attempts should be made at a convention for the settlement of the claims in one instance a convention devised by mr reverdy johnson then american minister in england had actually been signed by lord clarendon foreign secretary whose death in june eighteen seventy was followed by lord granville's removal from the colonial to the foreign office the senate of the united states however rejected this convention by a majority of fifty-four to one and mr reverdy johnson resigned his office the doom of the convention was chiefly brought about by the efforts of mr charles sumner a leading member of the senate of the united states most readers are probably aware of the fact that treaties concluded on behalf of the american government have to be referred for confirmation to the united states senate and that it is in the power of the senate either to confirm or to reject them in the foreign policy of the american republic the senate exercises a direct and most important influence mr sumner was at that time the most eloquent and the most influential member of the senate he was a man of remarkable force of character a somewhat masterful temperament to use an expressive provincial word a temperament corresponding with his great stature his stately presence and his singularly handsome and expressive face he was one of the leaders of the anti-slavery movement and the murderous assault made upon him some twelve years before in the old senate chamber at washington by a southern planter had filled the world then with horror and alarm sir george cornwall lewis happily described it as the first blow in a civil war mr sumner had been for the greater part of his life an enthusiastic admirer of england and english institutions he had made himself acquainted with england and englishmen and was a great favourite in english society he was a warm friend of mr cobden mr bright the duke of argyle and many other eminent english public men he was particularly enthusiastic about england because of the manner in which she had emancipated her slaves and the emphatic terms in which english society always expressed its horror of the system of slavery in his own country mr sumner passed for an anglomaniac when the american civil war broke out 
he expected with full confidence to find the sympathies of england freely given to the side of the north he was struck with amazement when he found that they were to so great an extent given to the south but when he saw that the alabama and other southern cruisers had been built in england manned in england and allowed to leave our ports with apparently the applause of three-fourths of the representative men of england his feelings toward this country underwent a sudden and a most complete change he now persuaded himself that the sympathies of the english people were actually with slavery and that england was resolved to lend her best help for the setting up of a slave-owning republic to the destruction of the american union in this mr sumner was mistaken great wrong was thoughtlessly done to the american union by the acts of statesmen and others in england but it is not true that there was any general sympathy with slavery or any national treachery to the american union the whole question has been already discussed in these pages and the writer has not hesitated to condemn in the strongest terms much of the policy and many of the utterances of some of the leading statesmen of england but mr sumner was mistaken in his main conclusion the conclusion that love of slavery and hatred of the union dictated the foolish things that were often said and the unrightful things that were sometimes done his mind however became filled with a fervour of anger against england the zeal of his cause ate him up all his love for england turned into hate he was as little under the influence of sober reason when he discussed the conduct of england as burke was when he declaimed against the french revolution during all his career mr sumner had been a professed lover of peace had made peace his prevailing principle of action and yet he now spoke and acted as if he were determined that there must be a war between england and the united states mr sumner denounced the convention made by mr reverdy johnson with a force of argument and of passionate eloquence which would have borne down all opposition if the senate had not already been almost unanimously of one mind with him it is right to say that the particular convention agreed on between lord clarendon and mr reverdy johnson does not seem to have been one that the american senate could reasonably be expected to accept or that could possibly give satisfaction to the american people mr reverdy johnson was a marylander and may possibly have had some tinge of southern sympathies with a kindly and good-natured purpose to put an end to an international quarrel he does not seem to have considered the difference between skinning over a wound and healing it the defect of his convention was that it made the whole question a mere matter of individual claims he professed to have to deal with a number of personal and private claims of various kinds pending since a former settlement in eighteen fifty three claims made on the one side by british subjects against the american government and on the other by american citizens against the english government and it proposed to throw in the alabama claims with all the others and have a convention for the general clearance of the whole account now it must be evident to any one english or american who considers what the complaints made by the american government were that this way of dealing with the question could not possibly satisfy the american people it is surprising that a statesman like lord clarendon could for a moment have persuaded himself 
that there would be the slightest use in presenting such a convention to the american senate that he did so persuade himself and others is only one additional illustration of the curious ignorance of the condition of american political and national feeling which misguided england's policy during the whole of the american war the claim set up by the united states on account of the cruise of the alabama was first of all a national claim the american government and people said the course you have taken has prolonged the war against us you have given comfort and strength to our enemies you have allowed them to use your ports as arsenals and points of departure for their attacks on us your flag has protected their cruisers your sailors have manned their vessels and shotted their guns we claim of you as a nation injured by a nation to this the convention signed by lord clarendon made answer we are willing that the two nations shall go into arbitration as to any individual claims for personal damages which a few englishmen may have on the one side and a few americans on the other we are willing to look into the items of any little bill which mr thompson of new york may present for injuries done to his property provided that you will do us the favour of perusing in the same spirit any bill which may be presented to you on behalf of mr johnson of manchester this is really a fair statement of the difference between the convention which the united states senate rejected and that which the american government afterwards accepted the english government wisely gave way they consented to send out a commission to washington to confer with an american commission and to treat the whole question in dispute as national and not merely individual the commission was to enter upon all the various subjects of dispute unsettled between england and the united states the alabama claims the san juan boundary and the canadian fishery question the dominion of canada was to be represented on the commission the english commissioners were earl de grey and ripon afterwards created marquis of ripon in return for his services in washington sir stafford northcote mr montague bernard professor of international law at the university of oxford and sir edward thornton english minister at washington sir john a macdonald represented canada the american commissioners were mr hamilton fish secretary of state general shank afterwards american minister in england mr j c bancroft davis mr justice nelson mr justice williams and mr e r hoare End of section 32